Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 31, recorded on December 10th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm John. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you once again. And this first story brings a pretty big smile to my face, because anyone that's been listening to you for about the last six months has heard you make inferences and jokes about a really potential interesting situation brewing between Mozilla and Yahoo. And that's where we start this week. Yeah, so it's no longer Yahoo, as it's called Yahoo Holdings and Oath, but we're essentially talking about the company that was Yahoo. And back in 2014, they did a deal with Mozilla to become the default search in some countries, um, America and Canada, I think. Yep. And that was a very valuable deal at $375 million per year, up through to 2019, which works out at a lot of money. But part of that deal was a clause that said, if Yahoo is sold and Mozilla is unhappy with the person who buys them, then they can terminate the deal and go with another default search provider, but they can keep all the money. Right. And as we all know, Yahoo was sold to Verizon and Mozilla exercised that clause. Yeah. And have now gone back to Google as a default search and are getting that Google money coming in, but they want to have their cake and eat it as per the deal. But now Oath, which is the new name for Yahoo effectively, does not want to pay by the looks of things. And so it is getting legal. This has all been developing recently. On December 1st, Yahoo Holdings and Oath filed a legal complaint against Mozilla, claiming that they improperly terminated the agreement. And then, on December 5th, Mozilla filed a cross-complaint seeking to ensure that their rights under the contract that they had with Yahoo were enforced. And Mozilla has taken to their blog and essentially said, we just had a good contract. We did a good job writing this contract, and we exercised a clause that was clearly spelled out in said contract, and we're pretty happy with it. Well, this is all Marissa Mayer's fault. She was in charge of Yahoo at the time, and she oversaw this deal, and it was happening on her watch. And she's now (laughs) long since gone. And I don't see who else to blame for it. Honestly, Joe, this deal was made at the peak of the Marissa Mayer hype where there was nothing Yahoo could do wrong because they had new leadership. Why would they ever sell in this situation? So they signed on the dotted line. And Mozilla says the terms of the contract are clear and they feel like they have a good legal standing here. Well, the typical I'm not a lawyer, but from my understanding of it, I don't see how Mozilla can lose this. If they had a contract, they had a contract. But the way lawyers work... Maybe they'll pick that contract apart and find something that was illegal in it. And maybe Mozilla will lose out on this. Um, well, it's, it must be nearly a billion dollars. Well, at least half a billion. Perhaps. I would bet these kinds of things are fairly common in business contracts. So I bet there's a pretty solid defense behind it. But, you know, Mozilla has many things that they're working on at once. So we'll stay tuned and find out. But in the meantime, don't worry about fake news any longer, citizen, because Mozilla has a solution. Yeah, this is kind of a a relatively small story, really. They are putting up $40,000 as prize money for a few artists who can put together works for an exhibition in a museum in California that points out the problem of fake news and what we can do about it. it. It's kind of a token effort from them, really. 
For me, this falls under the category of things I wish Mozilla was not going anywhere close to. Fake news is a politically charged term, and different people see fake news as different things. A lot of people see fake news as just things that go against the narrative that they prefer. And this post, it comes across as tone deaf to their audience. I mean, think of the Mozilla enthusiast, somebody who is passionate about a free web, somebody that wants to use an open source web browser, somebody that wants to further Mozilla's goals in advocating a free web, right? That's, that could be like the core really fired up Mozilla audience member. And in the post, they write, we live in strange times in which legitimate news organizations such as CNN have to launch advertising campaigns to remind people of what real information is. Now, later on in the post, they talk about defending net neutrality and whatnot, but that is a complete disconnect when they talk about defending CNN. And just yesterday, CNN had to make a huge retraction on a a really big story that they messed up. And you can point to one of these things every single day. Now, some people call it fake news. Some people just call it news. And you have a different opinion of what fake news is. And I I just don't really see the long-term positive side to Mozilla getting involved with something that really comes down to often people's belief systems. Yeah, I think they're taking fake news to mean deliberate misinformation, propaganda, written by people who know it to be false rather than journalistic mistakes which happen all the time because of perhaps sloppy journalism you might not properly fact check things Mm -hmm. but to me at least there is a distinction there and that to me is what it felt like they were getting at there that makes sense i like that interpretation of it i think the reason why i have a disconnect is because it's it's these statements and these pro net neutrality statements and then they they do these hand wavy mentions to mixed reality art demonstrations that include 3D virtual content which can be integrated with someone's perception of the physical world around them, from simple enhancements of everyday experience with augmented reality to completely synthesize immersive virtual reality worlds, all in variations in between. You can read more about it here, and they give you a link. And that sounds like a bunch of hand-wavy BS. It's, so it's, it's, it is a subjective content fake news. That's a subjective subject with a subjective goal that when I read it doesn't even make any sense to me, really. I don't get what they're going for here. And then the prize is $40,000? How about you give $40,000 to extension developers that have to completely rebuild their extensions to make it work with Firefox Quantum? I just don't get it, Joe. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be negative, but I simply don't see it as money well spent. Well, I have to agree there. There are far better things they could be spending their money on like development of Firefox itself <laughs> or it, it maintaining Thunderbird even rather than because you think about the 40,000 that's going into this for the prize money how many salaries are going into people working on the project and organizing it and everything they must be spending a lot more than that public 40,000 mm. but they are awash with cash unless Yahoo wins so they've got to spend it on something and like you I would rather they spend it on the core stuff quite frankly. They wrap up their post saying that the Reality Redraw Challenge, which is the name of the challenge, is part of Mozilla's Information Trust Initiative, which was announced on August 8th of this year to build a movement to fight misinformation online. And they, in that, in that umbrella term, they also envision the fight against net neutrality, 
and other web open standards. Apparently, not the DRM extension stuff, but other standards that they view as part of this trust initiative to combat perhaps uh, corporate narratives or interest narratives online. This, you know, just in a in a one in zero world seems like a good idea. Where I personally have a little bit of issue with it is I just would like my tech companies to focus on making the best tech possible and let other companies focus on some of these politics. Not all of them. It's, it is a, it's, it's a hard to where you, sh- where you should draw the line. But for me, it does feel like Mozilla getting into some sort of campaign to fight misinformation online maybe crosses it. I think there are a lot of people who would disagree, but um, I can't say that I'm one of them. Um, all right, well, not strictly Linux, well, not Linux at all, but it is open source news. Classic Shell has been abandoned, but it's been abandoned in the correct way. It is now open source. So Classic Shell, of course, is software you can run on Windows to bring back a proper start menu and none of this Windows 8 and 10 nonsense. And it's been very, very popular, this software. But the developer has said that he's had enough of trying to chase the changes that keep happening in Windows 10 a couple of times a year and that he's had enough. And so here you go, community, have it if you want it. Released under an MIT license. Seems like a fair enough deal to me. And the thing I appreciate about this story is the developer is leaving the community forms active and running on his servers at his cost for a period of time to give people a place to temporarily organize to get this thing rolling again. The reason I put this in, okay, it's not Linuxy, it's not that interesting, but what's interesting is this is how to abandon software. And I would really like to see other proprietary software abandoned in this way so that it is available to the community rather than just dying and going away and being locked up as proprietary software that we can't do anything with. This is actually a pretty useful tool, and that's why I agree with you. It's great to see a useful tool that helps people work well with the machine. You know, you learn a way to use a computer. You've been using it that way for 10, 15 years. We have a lot of people that listen to this show that are using Windows as their daily driver, and they probably have their Windows box configured in a way that works really well for them. I recently tried out Windows 10 just for a few days as a Coda radio challenge about two weeks ago. You know, it's not bad. I was impressed. It, it did better than I expected, especially once you load the Windows subsystem. You put a different sh- terminal emulator on there. And I could see how adding something like this would, would make people pretty productive. And it's really nice that once you get sort of in a groove to not just have something like this disappear, which is often the risk on these proprietary platforms. So having this go open source means that people that have a good workflow that can get their job done are going to have a tool now that maybe the community will continue. That's going to be the interesting thing because there's a few other tools that solve this particular problem, so I don't know how much demand there is. So we'll have to just kind of wait and see where the community takes this thing. Well, if I was forced to use Windows, I would want to use something like this, and I would far rather it be free and open source software. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You go there to sign up for the Linux Academy platform. It's a full-featured training library with everything you need to learn new skills and advance your career. And you get a seven-day free trial at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. My favorite feature of Linux Academy is the hands-on labs, scenario-based labs that spin up when you need them, that give you experience on real servers, the distribution 
in that VM matches the distribution you chose for your courseware. And if it's a, a virtual server on their infrastructure or an AWS lesson, they handle all of that with a really sophisticated backend. And you get real-world experience with this. So when you go do something in production or you go take the test, you have that confidence because you've done it. And they have self-paced in-depth video courses on every Linux and cloud and DevOps topic. And if you get stuck, you need a little help, don't worry. They have full-time human instructors that are happy to advise and answer questions that you might have. Course schedulers when you're busy, especially like around the holidays, if you got a couple of kids like I do and you run your own business, the course scheduler is invaluable and they work with you too. And there's, there's flashcards to help you study that are forked by the community, like it's an open source project. And the community is stacked full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, support this show, and sign up for a free seven-day trial at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about Bitcoin again. We talked about it last week, cracking the $10,000 barrier, and it's been up nearly to 20, and it's been back down to 13, 14. I think it's about 15-ish now as we record, but not interested in that particularly. I'm more interested in the UK and the EU planning to crack down on Bitcoin because people are using it to launder money and fund terrorism and things. Right. And we we all know that if you live in the West, you're only allowed to use cash around the world to fund terrorism and launder money and only tax loopholes in uh, certain islands. But one of my lessons, Joe, and because when you look at the article, it looks pretty bad. But one of my lessons uh, that I've learned in Bitcoin over the years is I've watched different governments go through this process is this is step one into legitimizing the Bitcoin market for, here in the States, I would say, Wall Street. So you have to have this in place. This happened while I was recording Plan B um, years ago. This happened here in the States. This began to happen. And it was a necessary step because today, as we record this episode, some big Wall Street banks are launching a futures market for Bitcoin. They couldn't have done that without this step. And the reality is there's plenty of other crypto out there for these particular use cases. You want to buy drugs, you want to fund a little terrorism, there's other cryptos. Bitcoin isn't the crypto for you already. It's already not. It's, Bitcoin is not anonymous. It's not anonymous. So this is a legitimizing of the marketplace that then allows businesses to build predictability around Bitcoin in terms of how the government's going to react to them profiting it and how they're going to tax them. And once that predictability is in place, they start building products or offering services around it. It seems bad on the surface, but it typically leads to a marketplace. So you don't think that it's bad that the government wants to try and get in and tax it and regulate it and get their hands all over it? No, I don't think so. I think it makes it a practical commodities market now, in a sense. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm not saying people should invest in Bitcoin. But I'm saying people that are interested now have a legal framework to work within where they can have gains and losses and report it to the government. It sounds like you just want the price to keep getting driven up so the few Bitcoins you've got keep getting more valuable. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm sort of... Uh, I don't personally hold any Bitcoin anymore, but JB has some, but not a lot. It's sort of at the point now where it's not going to make a huge difference for us either way. But I am kind of fired up about the blockchain concept and adding more and more value to that to sort of validate that. And I'm really passionate about the concept of money being divorced from the state and having internet money, essentially. 
uh, even if it's just like a back-end technology, it's an implementation detail. And the fact that it's open source and the fact that it's worth so much right now makes it extremely fascinating. And so I, I like to kind of I kind of like to watch these stories develop because I've seen a pattern now. We're hearing about it when it comes from the UK or it comes from the US, but the reality is a lot of other countries have already gone down the same exact path and it's worked out for the better. All right, fair enough. Well, let's talk about Android Go, which is a confusing name because of Google's programming language called Go, but okay, let's ignore that. And this is a version of Android for low-end hardware, as in phones with a gigabyte of RAM and under. And they announced this back in May of this year, but now it's being released to the OEMs so they can start making these devices. And to me, this is really exciting. I'd like to see a lot of this stuff rolled into custom ROMs, and maybe if Lineage, for example, have the resources to make an open-source version of it, I'd be very interested in running it because Android is big and bloated and even on a flagship phone, albeit one from a couple of years ago, it's a little bit bloated. So I would like to see this slimmed down version running and I just don't understand why Android main version can't run on a phone with under a gigabyte of RAM. That was my takeaway too. I saw this and I thought, if if you could do all of this stuff for lower resources phones... Why not do this for all the phones and the phones with more resources would just be even faster? It, it, it sort of boggles the mind. So I'll give you a couple examples, some concrete examples. Um, they have a, a Google Go app, which, yes, this is Android Go, and then it has a Google Go app, which is a renamed version of their search app. It's like a light, smaller version. And one of the things it does is it transcodes or recompresses all of the third-party web pages for faster loading. So then they have a version of YouTube called YouTube Go, kind of the same general thing. The YouTube app uh, lets you download videos for offline viewing, even if you don't have a red subscription. Sounds pretty nice. And here's another nice thing it can do. It can share videos with nearby friends by transferring the actual YouTube video you downloaded over Wi-Fi. It creates an ad hoc network and transfers the video between YouTube apps when you have YouTube Go. Now, there are some limitations, like standard quality. It doesn't go above um, 360p, I believe. But boy, wouldn't I love that. Wouldn't I love that when I'm, well, if I could download my app, my, my videos here at work on my fast 100 megabit Wi-Fi connection, then go home to my RV when I'm camping out in the boondocks and transfer all of them to my Android TV YouTube app and watch them right there offline. That would just be, that'd be wonderful. But uh, I'm too privileged, apparently. Then the, the other thing, just sort of from like a quantifiable standpoint, the YouTube app on Android Go is 8. Nine four megabytes. The YouTube app for standard Android, 25 megabytes. Yeah, which means every time you have to update it, you have to pull down another 25 megabytes. Right. And the smaller Go apps are also using an improved version of the Android runtime, a modification apparently. They call it the Go edition of the Android runtime, which uses 50% less space than the Android 7 version comparison did. And Google says that the average app is now 15% faster on devices running Android Oreo Go edition. And space is always at a premium, isn't it? So that's more space for your apps and your downloads and your photos and videos and everything. It just sounds like a brilliant idea. And I really hope that I can get access to this somehow on my devices. I would be surprised if this didn't trickle down to standard Android as well. Why not have some of these gains and performance improvements and load time improvements on standard Android if you can't? Perhaps this was the initiative 
that took Google to focus on this problem, and then they can turn back and upstream that to the standard Google apps as well. Yeah, hopefully. And MediaTek have announced that they've got some system on a chips that are purpose designed to work with Android Go Edition. Yeah, it's 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 even more than that though, Joe, because it's like pre-certified. It's essentially almost everything you need to build a phone. You add the screen, you add your own software, and they have three different iterations of system on a chips, among others that they're working on, that have support out of the box and are already certified for Android Oreo Go Edition, which means you cut weeks out of the certification process. Now, there's still more certification has to happen because OEMs add their own crap on top and then have to get it recertified. But the fact that the system on the chip and the main boards are good to go cuts a ton of overhead out. And this is all about the next billion, isn't it? Yeah, it's about the next billion users, and MediaTek is the big name that's working with Google. MediaTek is kind of famous for making low-end, cheap system-on-a-chips, but Google's been working closely with them to try to get something that's cheap enough and ready to go where a manufacturer can come along and produce really cheap Android devices and, yeah, get that next billion users. Well, it's looking good for the future of ARM devices, but... It's not looking too good for the present of x86 Intel devices, is it? There's been a lot of talk recently about the Intel management engine, about different OEMs that are taking provisions to try to disable it. And now we have news about researchers that have discovered a flaw that not only could exist after the management engine has been disabled by these OEMs because it exists at a different layer, but could even potentially be exploited remotely, depending on the particular type of attack. Yeah, this came out of Black Hat Europe this week. And the idea that if you've got physical access to the machine, you can overwrite the updated firmware with an older one and then exploit it, that's quite worrying. And the fact that there's potential for remote exploits happening here is very worrying for all of my machines that are running Intel processors. Yeah, and the duo that showed this off at Black Hat also showed off the ability to completely bypass what Intel calls the Canary, which is a memory watcher that catches overflows via change detection and then says, oh, somebody's trying to screw with me. They've completely bypassed that detection technique, and that allows them to run executable code running return-oriented programming, according to their presentation. Went a little over my head, but what I grokked from this was with a couple of island hopping type exploits. They could eventually get remote control depending on the version of the management firmware and the exploits that are there, or if they could gain physical access and just reload the previous versions that were vulnerable, which there's no protection mechanism against. Yeah, and once they've got control of one machine, they can spread through the network to others. Now, I want to play devil's advocate for a moment. I hear my sysadmin brothers and sisters out in the audience that are saying, but guys... I have so many machines, and the management engine does actually give me useful functionality that I care about, um, including some features that allow for remote system recovery, uh, which can be a game changer, device inventory management, which can be really important and a huge time saver for IT departments. So it's not as if there's zero use for the management engine. But what I think we're discovering is perhaps something like this shouldn't be integrated so deeply into the system. Maybe it should be a PCI expansion card or a USB dongle or something that is added by the user that could even be open source. I'd love to see an open source solution here. And if the community knows of something like this, please let me know at Chris LAS. I would love to do a deep dive into that because it seems like with the management engine and 
AMD's PSP getting a lot of attention recently. We need the open source community to step up here. Yeah, or maybe AMD could come and uh, eat Intel's lunch. Yeah, and really take a market leader position and do this right, make it open source, engage the community, and just run away with it potentially. This is the time to strike right now. Well, we've been watching this Intel story develop for the last few months, and no doubt there's going to be further developments down the road. And if you want to stay up to date with that and other stories, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in contact with us. And you can support the whole network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye.